It just sounds old, like the opening to a noir film, but it was only a couple of months ago, on a night of the most regular kind of thing imaginable, just walking into a bar in Berlin, Mina Bar in the Mitte district actually, in search of a little bit of food, some drink, and some conversation. That kind of night out feels, from this point, a bit like Atlantis, lost beneath the waves to all of us. But now, in parts of the world, with appropriate caution I hope, it's coming back. In Oslo this week, my friend Nud Dudia cooked at a wine bar on the very first day of reopening after Norway's strict and mostly successful lockdown started. I talked with him for this episode about social distancing rules and what he calls the COVID vibe vacuum. It was damn pleasant to be able to envision him back at the grill again on a warm May evening in Oslo. But I don't want to give myself over entirely to nostalgia. Because truth be told, there is a lot about food and the way that we feed people, at least here in beautiful North America, that would, in a more perfect world, be reformed as it reemerges. To that end, I also spoke with author and activist Joshna Maharaj in Ontario to mark the launch of her book, Take Back the Tray, about how to fix the way that we feed people in hospitals, schools, and prisons. I also talked with the writer Tunde Wei in New Orleans, who has been a smart and challenging critic of the independent restaurant industry in our own country. This is Nathan Thornburg, and from Roads and Kingdoms, you're listening to The Trip, The World on Lockdown. Now here's Nud on a somewhat shaky line from a beautiful May evening in Oslo. You are at a kitchen. I am, yes. I'm um, at a wine bar in Oslo called Lasaret. How does it feel? It feels fucking good. It feels really good. Uh, I mean, really fun night. Yesterday I was in the weeds from pretty much the get-go because I, I felt like I was kind of doing things wrong and my planning was all out, out of kilt and it was like I hadn't been in the kitchen for years, not weeks, if you know what I mean. But um, it all it all worked out in the end. It was a fun, fun night. Set the scene for me. What what was it? So Lasaret is a little kind of nature wine bar in uh, Torshov in Oslo. Um, originally about a thirty seater bar, I believe. And last night, due to social distancing measures, it became a fourteen to fifteen person bar, plus outside, which was another four. Um, it's a predominantly wine-focused bar, and then I've been cooking up a menu of seven items last night, which were all uh, it was almost like a little tasting menu, which was accompanied by my friend Martin Solhoy cider, which I believe you've tried. There's a lot of ramsin in season here, so ramsin flowed through many of the dishes, but um, it was mainly tacos. I did a brisket huarache. Um, with a salsa chintesle, which I picked up in Mexico on my last adventure out of this country. Um, and what else did we do? I did a grilled pork with black miso taco and uh, crunchy radish, uh, cauliflower and tahini creme fraiche kind of situation with fermented ramsin, some mesquites with ramsin mayo and wonton chip and some 40-month-old comte cheese, 
and then a very warm whipped chocolate mousse with some more chili, um, pasilla mije chili. It was a stunning evening. For, it was probably one of the warmest days in Oslo in recent times. Um, we had the grill on outside, so we had a Weber grilling up. We grilled most of the dishes outside. We had people sat out here drinking wine, people walking by trying to get in. Unfortunately, obviously, with the social distancing, we had to kind of cap how many people we could let in or out at any given time. Um, but it was a magical evening. The sun was perfect, and uh, I think we had people out until the maximum time we could, which was around 10 15, 10 30. It was an epic night. And you had mentioned that social distancing does change the vibe a little bit. What is that? I mean, what does that feel like? Well, from a working capacity, I'm not allowed to. We have to be two meters apart from each other at all times. However, we can be one meter apart from each other for a maximum of 15 minutes. And then we have to go back to being two meters apart, which, given I don't even have a watch on, is kind of quite stressful generally but I've never stood in one place for more than 15 minutes or five minutes in the kitchen so it's a it's a bit of a flawed system to be honest um, when they leave there has to be a the government has employed a 30 minute clean down period where we have to basically scrub down every surface and clean down every chair every like you're doing a deep clean of the restaurant for half an hour until the next city deep cleaning the restaurant three to four times in a night it's great <laughs> but uh, normally where i keep my pen in the top of my apron i also have to have a um a hand sanitizer spray which i have to spray every whatever and are you taking temperatures <laughs> yes i am very much so oh you mean of the, i thought you meant of my food <laughs> no we're not we're not taking temperatures of people no not at all make sure your your customers are cooked all the way through yeah, exactly in terms of the customer experience um, it's kind of a bit weird because obviously we've had to put down markers on the floor and on the bar as to where people are allowed to be and where they're not allowed to be so you're given almost an, a quarantined area when you enter into this restaurant and you're allowed to exist within that quarantined area Unless, of course, you need to go to the toilet, which then you can leave your quarantined area and enter somebody else's quarantined area on the way, and many others' quarantined area on the way to the toilet, and, and vice versa on the way back. Um, we can't have a queue for the toilet, so we have to kind of, almost like you are in school, put your hand up, and, oh, you need the toilet, wait a minute, you're next in line. So it's a bit stressful from that perspective people turning up as with six people and you're actually only allowed a maximum of five not really sure why they chose an odd number there but so it's only five you're allowed maximum um, and then just generally after a few drinks people getting a bit kind of leery and us trying to keep them in the same place and you know, get them dancing around and moving about so. it's also quite strange to be in a restaurant that's designed for 30 people and only less than half of those people being in that restaurant. So it kind of always feels empty, if you know what I mean. And that's kind of a bit of a COVID vibe vacuum. The COVID vibe vacuum, I can imagine, is real. Because, you know, it, it is one of the challenges of, of reopening restaurants is the that sort of shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder feeling 
particularly in in the world that you traffic in small spaces wine bars taco shops you know these things are really part of the a crucial part of the experience the conviviality right there's conflicted feelings last night from a customer perspective i think it kind of feels like you're dining in some weird fancy kind of restaurant when you're not you're just in a nice little wine bar with some good food because it because because of the space and because of almost the formality of the dining experience so it's um it, it's great and it's amazing to be out of the house and to be cooking again and to be ordering ingredients and working with suppliers and all the rest of it it's just sad that it's not at its 100 percent yet but there's hope you know ultimately this is like the smallest glimmer of hope we've had here in eight weeks and i'm gonna fucking take it <laughs> you know tell me about about breados what uh what what's happening across the water yeah it's a bit different in london obviously um our taqueria is a 37-seater, 40-seater joint built around conviviality, as you called it, but it is just a vibe, a, a place for vibes and people eating shoulder to shoulder, bumping into each other. And there's no way that we can foreseeably see that opening in the near future anyway. Um, the other sites we hold, a restaurant in Liverpool, potentially might have, once we have some social distancing measures allowed, um, that might open again, but all of the other Bredo sites will remain closed because they exist within mass footfall areas and um, kind of locations which almost need hundreds of people to be within in order to work, you know, from a financial perspective. I mean, we just opened a place uh, in King's Cross with some guy, um, with actually one of the guys from Mumford and Sons, the, the band people, and it's a music venue. It's a gig joint, you know, it's a 2,000 capacity live music venue with food by Breados. I mean, that's not going to open anytime soon. So, sadly, we've mothballed pretty much all our sites at the moment. Um, they're not losing money, they're not making money. We've kept all of our staff. The government um, furlough scheme has been really helpful for that. Loads of grants being given to us. So, Currently we're on we're on mothball and as soon as that gets lifted we we'll be back but uh, it's a it's a sad time for Breno's for sure in London and we just need to kind of wait and ride out the storm. In Oslo, any any thoughts for the many chef restaurateurs here in the states uh, as they contemplate reopening and what that would feel like. I've got to say, man, it's like going back to work, number one, is probably one of the greatest things ever. And all those times that I've moaned about having to go into work and whatnot, I kind of take back a little bit now because it's so great to just fucking get out of the house and write a list, an MEP list, and go through what's in season and speak to suppliers. And it's almost like reigniting your love of cooking again to a degree and working with people and having the last eight weeks away from having being able to do that has also been able to kind of, I've been sat reading so many cookbooks and researching, it's been great to come back feeling fresh and feeling like, fuck, this is like, this is what I do for a living and it's fucking amazing. The huge feeling of elation last night when we finished the first, um, we finished the final serving and everyone had left and we we're cleaning down, it was like, fuck, it's just great to back kind of thing. So just kind of hang in there, man. Hopefully uh, everyone will be back soon.
I first met Joshna Maharaj when I heard her speak in Ireland a couple years ago. I think she's an excellent speaker with that kind of warm, effortless laugh and a very evident passion for her subject matter. She spoke with me about her new book, Take Back the Tray, revolutionizing food in hospitals, schools, and other institutions from her home in Ontario. So let me, let me ask, based on one of your quotes, the, the real problem with institutional food has nothing to do with the food. Yes. So let's, let's start there. Okay. What, is, what does that mean? So it really, while obviously the thing on the plates is the most offensive, the real problem is the attitude that thinks that that was okay to serve. <laughs> right? It's like this, this plate of plastics did not emerge from a it's vacuum. It's not it precisely. From... Someone, some human put that together and said, yep, cool. Go for it. Um, and that's the piece that I really want to talk to, right? And listen, you and I have some connection to uh, hospitality. And, and that's really the space that I speak from here, right? From a hospitality perspective, those shitty plates of food tell patients three times a day that they are not worth any more effort than this, right? And from a hospitality perspective, it's a fucking disaster, right? That is a disaster of messaging. And so, of course, I walk in there and I see this and I'm all like red flag, five alarm. But the doctors and everybody else, who's there, that's just not their vibe, right? That's not their lens. They don't see it. And it's only when I name it and I say, I know that you don't intend this, but you need to know that this message is being delivered regardless, right? You are not just a theorist. You're a woman of action. I am. You have, yes. you have had to be in the role of making uh, daily on the ground decisions that affected food. So tell me about that experience and how that plays out in this book. Yeah, the, well, I hope that it really provides some legitimacy to the argument. You know, that I went into the trenches three times, two big hospitals, one university campus that I got to, and I, like, the university campus, I got to overhaul the entire operation. And I had two and a half years, which is longer than I usually get, which is amazing, right? And that was really like on the ground, reworking the way I talk about it, reworking how we purchase, cook, serve, and then deal with the waste of food. Complete, the complete cycle uh, I overhauled. And, uh, and I know exactly, oh my God, the frustration, the irritation. It is the maddening kind of like, and like, uh, early, like I say a lot, the thing about institutions is they're built to do one thing. Right. They do one thing one way. And if you want to change any of that, you have to realize that it's like pulling a thread or flicking dominoes and you have to be prepared for all the other pieces that are going to change. So classic example is I wanted to put roast potatoes on a hospital menu. Simple roast potato. Like, oh, uh, I got some Ontario potatoes all year round. Super great. We found a peeler. Right. That's the other piece is that there's, <laughs> there's no cooking equipment. And we found I maybe I brought it in. We found a U-shaped peeler so we could make light work of this. And Amazing. so I'm peeling the potatoes. Then all of a sudden, one of the maintenance guys happens to be walking by and he's like, wait a second, what are you doing? Because I filled an organics bin for the first time in years. And they had no protocol, right? And then there's union limit on how heavy those bags can get. And there's a line, there's a dotted line actually on the bag for how full it can get because of what the maximum weights that one worker can lift. So then I had to slow down and start, you know, I mean, start putting my peels into another bag so that we would divide, right? Then when they take the bag out, there's no space at the dock, at the loading dock, because no one's ever... 
No one's ever thrown out organics. No one's ever peeled any vegetables in the last like 15, 20 years, right? So there's no space at the dock for the waste and the waste people don't know that they now have to come, you know? And I was like, man, I just wanted to put roast potatoes on the menu. (laughs) (laughs) And there's all of this, right? It's so crazy. Uh, amazing, right? The 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 sort of uh, the entire building shuttered. <laughs> like the industrial food system is like has blossomed in public institutions, right? It has mm. really been a boon uh, to you know the big food industry has been a, has been a gift to cash-strapped administrators because as their budget shrunk, the only food that could actually fit is this weirdly manipulated nonsense. Right. And if you know, and if they have the guarantee of this many contracts of this many institutions, then it's worth it to scale up that production and get those belt lines moving to, you know what I mean, to do all this weird shit to the food. Uh, and that is it's really like it's really like the hallmark showcase of the industrial food system. Uh, let me ask you about the hospital stays. Yes. Has there been any research done about causality? Is there just not enough data out there yet uh, between? Yes. Yeah. Because and and I, what I've actually been screaming for is someone to give me uh, a, a project where I get to for a whole year, give everybody the food they you know what I mean, and have two hosp you know I we need two hospitals one everybody gets the food that I think that they should be having and then we start yeah. measuring testing diabetics get a cooking class before they're discharged you know what I mean whatever beautiful gorgeous thing we can send them off with. And then we measure yep. outcomes. That's the that's what I'm waiting for. Until then, we have lots of talk about waste reduction. About uh, I mean, this really centers around patient satisfaction, right? Mm-hmm. A- and it unfortunately it also depends on how the administrator how much they care about patient satisfaction, right? I've had administrators say if they can be vocal enough to complain about the food, they can go home, uh, which is amazing. <laughs> right? <laughs> which, that is right. That makes a very difficult survey group. It's a tricky. It's like, a tricky. <laughs> if you can lift a pencil, I don't want to hear from you anymore. This is it. You're cool, right? It feels like there's a lot in common with the the work that Jose Andres does oh, yes. in kind of describing the spiritual sustenance of a of a of a cooked meal. Oh you know, of of For a sure. of, of actual food. Where do you place the spiritual argument with administrators? Uh, so my heart means spiritual nourishment, blessings, love, connection. But I cannot, I don't use those words because it, you know what I mean? They're dead in the water, sadly. Those words are dead in the water, right? Those words to an administrator coming from this brown girl, like it's, you know what I mean? It's a bit of a recipe for this. It's too much. So instead I talk about holistic applications and transparency and, you know what I mean? And this sort of thing. And that really sings to people, right? But I mean, more than this, uh, and Chef, uh, Chef Jose is... It's a perfect example of this is that the food is so much more than just the calories on the plate, right? And that, that piece, Nathan, is the hospitality, right? What we have decided is too expensive. The idea of human connection, of knowing that there's a person in the basement who cares about you, who has made you a meal with some thought and attention, Right, all of those things we have decided are too expensive. That's all the stuff that's been trimmed from budgets. So it's now down to this basic, really empty calories on a plate. That's the most reduced version of it, right? If they could uh, put a little pill in your, you know, one pill in your mouth to offer those nutrients, we're not, we're really not that far away. People should not have to surrender their humanity in desperate times, right? And and listen, I was talking to somebody recently. We are all living this right now. Right. The fact that we are seeing such a spike in hours clocked in the kitchen 
is evidence mm. of our collective understanding that that in times of uncertainty, you know, when we're frightened or when things aren't okay or when we are really confronted with our survival, uh, a good plate of food is what does the job, right? This is the same urge that a patient or a student or a prisoner has. It's just their reality is more permanent. You know what I mean? It's there and the rest of us are now here. That's amazing. I hadn't I hadn't thought about that correlation, but of course we're it all could, out here yeah. trying to yeah. self medicate through sourdough good homemade food. Uh, right? <laughs> sourdough clearly is at the top of the list. And many a chocolate chip cookie being made. Uh, but that's how we're doing it. I noticed in your uh, announcement, uh, reading it, you said uh, you know that you were very proud to put out your first book today. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the next one? Uh, you know <laughs> what? I'm, I'm already here? thinking about it. The next thing I really want to think about is rethinking the way we build our culinary curriculum, the way we train chefs. I think it is uh, with with these exclusive roots in the French context. I think it has become both uh, outdated and just inadequate, uh, and a, an instrument of colonization. <laughs> I think both of those yeah. things are happening, uh, and I think they need to change. Right. I think we really need to rethink where our standards are and who our chefs are and the kind of food that we're serving. It's not based on five mother sauces anymore. It's not right. We don't only want those clear, delicate broths. uh, Right. And just everything laced with sauce. Uh, right. But what I find is a problem is that as as uh, both a woman and a person of color, uh, the vibe really, really is I get more credibility when people know that I've had French training. Right. Mm. That's when they're like, oh, you've oh. Right. And people are still like, oh, you've done. I'm like, yes. And so what came out of my mouth recently was I can make my biryani once I have proven my souffle. <laughs> right. right, which is a uh, very strange ordering of in, the cultural universe. Indeed, indeed. And so, uh, my next my next bite is going to be attempting to untangle this a little bit. Writer, cook, and columnist Tunde Wei is a unique voice in American food. Profiled in GQ for his smart provocations and his talent for, as the writer put it, punching up, including unflinchingly at my former co-host of this show. Tunde has been on the case during the pandemic, speaking out against the bailout demands of the independent restaurant industry, among other things. He talked to me from his home in New Orleans. What do we not understand, I guess, you know, broadly in the in the food world about what needs to happen when we reopen? Like, how is the conversation kind of fucked up right now? So I am not a restaurant expert in that I don't own a restaurant. I haven't like run a restaurant since 2015. And even when I did that, I was barely successful. I mean, I I was actually unsuccessful. Um, And before that. Um, I had another restaurant that I was not very successful at, even though that restaurant itself was successful. All that to say is that my bona fides, when it comes to restaurant ownership, uh, um, non-existent. Um, so, uh, but that, 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 that doesn't stop me from having an opinion. I think that it's generally an exploitative industry and it is not any more particularly exploitative than other industries or than the larger system that it exists in. 
but it is exploitative. And if we are um, moving towards somewhere new, um, then it may be a good idea to consider moving to a place that is less exploitative, better yet, equitable. And so just broadly, that's, that's my position. So sketch out what, what for you exploitative means in a restaurant context. And materially, uh, restaurant workers work long hours and don't get paid enough and they don't have benefits and um, they don't have um, the necessary social support and um, system that they need to be able to, I think, function as um, productive people at their jobs and productive people outside of their jobs. And the extraction of their... um, um, of their value um, in the restaurant industry, in the restaurant system benefits uh, an ownership class that is also to a certain extent being exploited by the system, right? Because these folks work long hours as well um, and they're super stressed out about um, meeting payroll, paying bills, um, but they there's some sort of like disconnect or or dissonance they don't see their their struggle in solidarity with the the workers enough to change or av- advocate for a system that is um more um more quality like getting restaurateurs to advocate for a different industry what what does that look like to you let me just be specific i'm speaking to the IRC, I believe, the Independent Restaurant Coalition. Those folks, I'm not speaking to the National Restaurant Association, which has an unfortunate acronym in my mind, (laughs) NRA. (laughs) Not those folks, which is the larger problematic Uh, group. Um, But the IRC, which which, which is like pretending a, a benevolence that I don't think it is practicing, those folks shouldn't advocate for anything except for, in my mind, universal healthcare, universal um, education, higher education, um, some sort of uh, universal basic income, like all of the things that secure the workers that they say they are fighting for. So they're using a language of solidarity that is not in keeping with, with, the, with the reality. They're, they're using uh, this language of so- solidarity with workers, but it's ultimately just serving and benefiting them. So I don't think there should be any specific or sectoral um, uh, appeals for bailouts when we haven't had uh, a program that addresses workers who, in fact, are people in general. So when I talk about a tremendous, a tremendous organizing potential, I'm talking about a potential gear towards um, addressing the fundamental uh, the, fund- the fundamental material reality of workers or people in general. So it's not about can you fix the PPP because the PPP doesn't really address independent um, uh, uh, restaurants or can you do more can can you can we um, can you cut our payroll taxes or you know these really administrative fixes. Um, that are not comprehensive and, you know, they're just like a patchwork of responses when we need something more um, comprehensive. That's so fascinating. I I think about the education system, which I had reported on way back then, and 
all the weight that schools had to pick up for the rest of society's fuck ups, you know, the, the waves that were leaving people unfed and unhoused, the schools are both charged with and expected to somehow fix these things. I, I guess what you're saying is, is that there's an entire context around the restaurant industry that all of this energy, this self-lobbying that they're doing now would be better spent addressing. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. And now is, now is the time. But I promise you, nothing's going to change. You know, it is what it is. Nothing is going to change. It feels like there's so many opportunities to, to, to turn this thing in another direction. And, and already you can start to, I mean, by, by lengths, you can already see that's not where it's headed. <laughs> Bro, it's a, it's, it's a wrap already. You know, folks are talking about opening up the economy, uh, opening things back up. It's over. Like, the moment is past in my mind. Nothing that could be transformative um, is going to happen, at least not because of the coronavirus, you know. It is what it is. I, I think that um, for a certain group of folks, you know, I'm talking about like folks who have been on the margins, whether you're an immigrant or you're a person of color um, or you are economically um, disadvantaged, um, the status quo, you know, equilibrates back to disparity. That's just what it is. And so there's a, an, an unfortunate cynicism and resilience um, that is just uh, in, in, in institutional now. There's this, uh, I think he's a, a legal theorist. Uh, his name is Derek Bell. Uh, he's a black uh, legal theorist. And he says that, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he says in a book, it's called The, the, the Faces at the Bottom of the Black Well, something like that. But anyway, he says that, you know, if you start with the premise that nothing is going to change, you know, you don't in fact give, give way to pessimism, but you work harder, right? Like the problem is that we, that we assume that things are going to get better. Like our understanding of, of history is linear and it's moving towards like this direction of uh, this utopic uh, or utopian place. I think that's sort of like a, I think it's a European Eurocentric perspective is that we're moving mm. towards um, justice. Right. And people quote um, um, MLK, who I think was quoting somebody else when he said that the moral arc of the universe bends towards um, justice. He said it bends. He never said it touches. But the assumption <laughs> is that we get that. Right. And so because you think that the, that justice is inevitable, you'd feel less pressure to act towards mm. uh, um, justice. But if you think that justice is impossible, right, you I mean, this is how I think is that you will double, triple the efforts that you make so that we get closer to what is impossible because it is impossible. Right, you want to work harder to 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 get to this place that you know you you are not going to get to, but you want to get as close to it as possible because you know that doing the least is actually um, detrimental. And I think that's the um, that's one of the um, fundamental like challenges that we face is that folks just assume that good shit is going to happen without doing anything. Yeah. You know. 
you have neatly summarized a lot of my problems with Christianity. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure not even, uh, not even intending to do that, but I think that's exactly right. It's like, we have to be our own salvation and maybe, maybe there's a little more effort that comes out of that. All right. Well, thank you, Tunde. I appreciate it. Um, Thank you. Thank you too. The trip from Roads and Kingdoms is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg. Theme music by Dan the Automator, show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Executive producers are me and Mac Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. We are free and available on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm out. Next week, I will be back in my studio closet. That is where you can find me these days, listening to ambient B-roll audio from bars in Berlin on loop. We'll meet you there.